1: From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Gary Steingart is a funny writer. From his first novel, The Russian Debutantes Handbook, through the underrated Absurdistan and celebrated super sad true love story, to his memoir, Little Failure, and frequent pieces in The New Yorker, Steingart has the kind of touch for comedy that can't be taught. But deep down, his novels also want to be more. He is a Russian novelist after all, Russian-American at least, And weighty questions sometimes appear maybe unbidden in his books. Now in his latest novel, Our Country Friends, Steingart has written a hilarious and generous book about what it is to live now in the pandemic and just generally too. He's coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Our Country Friends, Gary Steingart's new novel, came out yesterday. The reviews of the book leading up to the release have bordered on the ecstatic. In the New York Times, Molly Young wrote, Our country friends is a perfect novel for these times and all times. The single textual artifact from the pandemic era, I would place in a time capsule as a representation of all that is good and true and beautiful about literature. I hope the extraterrestrials who exhume it will agree. I mean, I agree. It's really that good. It reprocesses Gary's own previous work and sends up the Russian country play and complicates the immigrant come-up story in a way that all feels effortless. It's big-hearted, unflinching, extremely American, and texting pictures of pages to friends funny. It's so good to talk with you, Gary. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's so good to be back. Yeah.
1: So set up the plot for us. Like, we meet... Sasha Sandorovsky, a novelist yeah. who is most definitely not you. Not uh, me at all. No. <laughs> and then I what swear. happened?
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Sasha's a kind of, oh, let's say, failing Russian novelist uh, who lives in upstate New York. Um, that's not me at all, although I do live in upstate <laughs> New York and I am Russian. Haha. Um, and he's married to his wife is Masha and she is a Russian psychiatrist. Uh, also not my wife at all. Uh, and they have a kid. Uh, kind of, um, she is uh, sort of uh, questioning her identity at the beginning of the book. Uh, Her name is Nat and she's adopted from China. And then uh, the pandemic strikes and all of Sasha's best friends uh, make their way up to uh, his little upstate uh, house. So there's uh, Karen Cho, who is a um, very wealthy web application developer. She's developed this app called True Emotions that's kind of like a magic love potion. It makes people fall in love with each other. Uh, there's his friend, Benud Mehta, who's a kind of uh, failing novelist slash um, short order cook at his uncle's um, restaurant in Jamaica, uh, I'm sorry, in Jackson Heights, Queens. There's um, uh, there's uh, Ed Kim, who is this uh, dandy. A gentleman, uh, as you described. Gentleman, oh, yes, he's a fine gentleman who, uh, Is the son of uh, um, the owners of a Chaebol in Korea. Chaebol is a gigantic corporation like Samsung. Uh, Then there's a D Cameron, get it? The Cameron? (laughs) Like, (laughs) oh God. Uh, Yes, D Cameron, who uh, is this fiery Southern uh, essay writer. And she's, as she likes to put it, of the left, but at the same time, she sometimes flirts with the hard right just to get more hits and attention from people. And so those are the main characters, but then comes a gentleman known solely as the actor, and this uh, thespian of great note, who is very attractive, is sort of like the hand grenade that's thrown into this yeah. little idyllic uh, country community, and he ends up, you know, having a relationship with just about everyone. All these love triangles, worthy of Tolstoy, and you know, and then um, uh, he really wreaks havoc upon the whole scene. He's the he's the wild card.
1: Yeah, you know, I think in prestige television you know the the trend is toward creating an entire show in which you hate absolutely everyone and one of the things that's really fun about this book is even the most hateable characters (laughs) are also lovable like every every single character the way that they are revealed there's something you end up feeling for them in a, in a good way. And I wonder, I know you do work on TV projects. Yeah. I wondered if you like were like, I would like to make
2: a book in which I actually like the people I'm writing about. You know, it was it's so rare for me because I, I am uh, kind of, a, I do specialize in anti-heroes. You know, uh, Absurdistan, which you mentioned, features the 400-pound son of a Russian <laughs> oligarch who's constantly obsessed about his uh, circumcision gone wrong. Uh, there's all kinds of very anti-hero kind of people but I actually fell in love with almost all of these characters and the actor included and it's funny because yeah now you know I'm talking to producers who want to you know make something out of this a limited series or something and it's it is odd it's an odd thing right because the the, the way things have been trending I worked on succession for example you uh, as a consultant so I know that having, you know, eight horrifying characters is almost uh, preferable these days to having eight <laughs> small, cute, furry, cuddly characters. But, you know, that's what I wrote. And I think, it, it, and, you know, uh, Succession obviously was written before the pandemic. But I think in these horrifying times, it's nice to actually not hate someone you're reading about or not yeah. hate them too much.
1: Yeah. And yet, you know, of course, these characters, like like people, are also they do bad things (laughs) they they hurt each other really badly like deep life hurt each other uh kinds of ways um I want to talk about how you sort of made this thing I mean this is a fully pandemic novel which uh, you know just running the numbers here means you didn't start until March 2020 and yet the book is in my hands in November 2021 so were you working on this like before Did, did it morph from something else
2: this is the fastest turnaround ever. And uh, I think what happened was well, first of all, I was writing a very a novel that just wasn't working very well. Um, it was a very comic novel. This is sort of, I mean, it's funny, I hope, but it's not, you know, the most, most yeah. comical novel I've ever written. But I was working on one of those very hyper satirical novels in which uh, NYU, New York University, had taken over half of Manhattan and A near-future dystopia. A near-future dystopia. But (laughs) it was a funny dystopia. You know, instead of blue helmets, they had velvet helmets, because velvet is the, uh, or indigo, or purple. I don't know. One of those colors is the color of NYU. Uh, Anyway, um, it was sort of funny. But uh, as the pandemic began, I thought, oh, my God, we are living in a real dystopia now. So that one wasn't just going to fly anymore. Um, So I changed gears very quickly. And what happened was I was upstate, and I have a, I live, I would say most of the year upstate in this little house that has uh, in the book, there's like a little bungalow colony. There's four different cottages for all of Sasha's friends to live in, but I have just one guest cottage and it's in use all the time. People are always visiting. Uh, uh, And so I um, was stuck there in a kind of, pandemic pod with some friends of mine who also lived there full-time and we sort of isolated together mm-hmm. uh, and that began to give me the idea of, of venturing forth and doing something. Uh, I began to think about friendship quite a bit you know because um, my family as well I began to think of family because we we're all stuck together but also the idea of uh, what does it mean to be a friend at a time where you can't really meet your friends mm-hmm. uh, and also of course I was quite lonely so I began to sort of populate My house with these imaginary friends and I would go on these (laughs) long walks and I would talk to my imaginary friends and then I would write down what I was talking about with my imaginary friends. So it was a very, very pandemic thing to do.
1: I mean, one of the things that I think readers of your work will kind of notice right away is there's like nature writing in this, quite beautiful nature writing. (laughs) um, And I I, I wondered if you, was that just, you know, you're out walking on the road, just like people do in there at the country house, or were you, did you get into nature writing? Were you like picking up the old John McPhee and you're like reading Ted Hughes poems or like, or were you just like, (laughs) this is what I'm seeing with my eyes?
2: Oh my God, John McPhee. I mean, I love John McPhee, but if you ever told me that I would be writing a, a book with, you know, Huge lyrical passages about nature—I would have laughed you off. I, I was never anything I'd written about. My my books are resolutely urban. I mean, they're as urban as you can get. Uh, but here I was left to my own devices for large stretches of the day. I took four-hour walks. I began to notice that oh my god, the daffodils are coming in and. That tree is maybe a spruce. I don't know. I got to get an app that'll tell me, you know, as, as everyone started to get all these apps that would tell them very basic things that most people know, but somehow New Yorkers just don't know. Um, and we, you know, that right now there's this wave of people just rushing toward upstate mm-hmm. uh, and probably I, I'm guessing something like that is happening in the Bay Area perhaps, but in, uh, in, in upstate New York, little, uh, you know, these post-industrial towns like Kingston, Beautiful towns, which have great historical history, but were kind of uh, messed up by the departure of industry. I think in that case, the departure of IBM, which had a mm-hmm. campus there. So uh, really messed up cities that all of a sudden are getting huge. I, I, I shouldn't say messed up. I mean, cities that have been through a lot, but have their own wonderful culture and now are being kind of overrun by Brooklyn hipsters. basically.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in it town in a similar position to portland oregon mm-hmm. but not, not oh like i see that. and so you know all the all the pickup trucks and the sort of the, the slow creep of like bougie markets you know up the yes. freeway kind of is what, yes. but I, um yes. and i wondered you know in your interactions with the town um do you feel like you live there or are you a new yorker who has a country home there
2: I think it's it's you know it's been about eleven twelve years since i've uh, since we bought that house and i I think a couple of years ago um, I began to feel more confused by New York than I am by upstate, which I guess is hmm. you know I, I remember just walking down the street after spending months in the summer there walking down the streets of New York and being like, I'm made a little bit anxious by all this, you know all these people what's <laughs> happening here. Uh, you know, and everyone's talking and, and but also at the same time, and I know this is a very boring um, sort of uh, um, complaint, but I New York has become very different from the city I remember in the 80s and in some ways, of course, it's much safer, etc. But it's also very corporatized these days. I mean, I have, I like think, literally eight Walgreens in a three block radius of me and, and 12 Chase Banks and, you know, I mean, you name it. It's just... And I live in the the middle of it's a different place and it's not a place I particularly it's not a place that gives that's interesting to explore anymore except you know there's all these wonderful food places and and that's all people do is just eat out that's become the main hobby and sport in Manhattan, but it was a very different city it was a city full of stories when I was growing up you know you'd walk down the street and just like in Jay McInerney's bright lights big city you know somebody in the opening scene tries to sell the protagonist the ferret. You know, everyone was trying to sell us a ferret back then. It was like ferret central. Um, and now, of course, it's, it's you know, uh, you know, Walgreens does not have a ferret counter. Uh, yeah. yeah so right. it's, it's very different. So I prefer, I mean, I'm often more surprised by things upstate than I am by things in the city.
1: Yeah. We're talking with novelist Gary Steingart about his new pandemic novel. If we can call it that, Our mm-hmm. Country Friends and we want to hear from you um, were you in a pandemic pod what's kind of one of your yeah. favorite memories from that time and listeners have you gotten a chance to read this book or or gary's previous work if you've got a question mor now's your time give us a call now at 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 You can get get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions for Gary Steingart to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going to explore some themes from the book when we come back from the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with novelist Gary Steingart about his new novel, Our Country Friends. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you have a question for Gary? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter and Facebook, KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org. I want to talk about what the pandemic did to us. Gary. I mean, you wrote in the New Yorker of that time, uh, a, a, you know, the pandemic moment when we're all, all inside mm-hmm. my mind rotates around and around like an owl's head. Rumination is the coin of my realm. Interiority breeds interiority. We are all living in a racial cusk novel now. What do you think I- I- long-term? Like we look back on this, you'd put your like novelistic hat on mm-hmm. this period Will it have like changed the way Americans think of themselves, or each other, or this country?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, we were faced with this enormous crisis. Um, societies often come together in, in a time of crisis. Uh, for example, uh, the way uh, our nation and and nations, allied nations, came together during the Second World War. But what was fascinating about this, obviously, is the way we were actually split even further apart. Um, To me, that's the frightening thing is that the nation keeps being cleaved into sort of mini nations, uh, which increasingly feel like they have nothing to do with one another. Uh, Obviously, there are bad forces, bad actors at work here that um, are creating that feeling. Um, but you know, among the people we mentioned the, the pandemic pod, but I think among, uh, smaller groups of people, those bonds have become ever stronger, such as mm. with the pandemic pod that, uh, I formed with my friends and, you know, I have an eight year old boy and he was all alone up there, but we found him playmates within this pod. And I think, I think he may actually think back on this period with some sort of, nostalgic fondness maybe when he grows older if he can remember this young age because the, he did become very good friends with some people and we all strengthened our friendships in a weird way it reminds me of the soviet union when i was growing up mm-hmm. where you know um you the state was a disaster politics were horrifying uh but people became but your family and your friends were sacrosanct you know that was the that was sort of the most important unit that you could look toward um, people didn't even go out to restaurants because, you know, who knows who was listening in. But you would meet each other in the kitchen of someone's house and everyone would drink and eat pickles and sturgeon and things like that. And that's how, sort of how you formed your own little community. And I think that's what was happening a little bit uh, during this pandemic as well.
1: I also read that you played this Russian card game, Durak, The <laughs> Fool. Yeah, <laughs> Durak, The Fool, yeah. Is it possible to did... explain or is it like... No, uh, no.
2: it's I, I, and I, and I and I'm very bad at explaining games, and this is the only game I think I really know how to play. Like, I, <laughs> I, I, poker, poker confuses me. It's like, what? All these rules, this and that. But it's a very straightforward game. Uh, but I, I still don't wouldn't know how to explain it. But I also love yeah, that I'm, I'm, if you
1: lose, right, you have to go under the table and then make a particular noise. I thought maybe you could do that for us.
2: Yeah, you go uh, <laughs> kukiriku, which is uh, you know uh, um, a rooster says uh, do in Russian, is ku. But I often wonder if that is a universal rule or rule, or is that just sadistically played in my own family. Uh, <laughs> I would not be surprised if it was the latter.
1: Um, you know, a, a more serious level, I do think, you know, There, we were talking about just yesterday, we had a show on um, Dia de los Muertos eh, and kind of thinking about the American way of thinking about death or not thinking about death more properly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, there has been a part of me that has wondered whether we... Along the same split, some people went deeper and deeper into thinking about, you know, mortality and wanting to have a different relationship to death. And so you see this kind of explosion of interest, you know, in, in even just the Mexican community about these these rituals around um, around death. But then what are the other people doing? Like, is was it possible for Americans to think less about death and mortality? And, and what does that even look like?
2: Yeah, you know, i mean it's interesting some people were saying oh i'm gonna live for the moment now because i know that every moment i'm alive is is precious but i think those feelings go away pretty quickly mm-hmm. once any kind of danger received sadly you know um but i also think america is is, is strangely divorced from death it's almost like we can't believe something that bad it, it happens to other people in other countries but do we actually die you know hence uh Peter Thiel's, for example, search for you know eternal life and all these other things. Uh, I covered this a little bit in my uh, dystopian novel, *Super Sad True Love Story*. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, there there is very much, I think, a, a feeling of not not. There's no peace to be made with death. It's something to be fought with every in every way possible. You know, so you have and, and you kind of see that in the, in these strange disparities in our healthcare system. You know, so many Americans aren't taken care of when they're alive by the system, and yet. If you're dying, the most advanced medicine will be brought to bear to keep you alive and hmm. probably suffering for, for, you know, three more days. Right. We, so we excel in that, but we don't really take care of people while they're still healthy and alive.
1: Yeah. You know, did you worry that pandemic events would turn somehow as you were working on this book and what you'd written about that period would seem dated or or <laughs> like, just like uh, off just off kilter?
2: Now, I knew from the very start that it would take us and I was writing this during the Trump days. Uh, I knew it would take forever for us to even begin to make a dent in this because there's no political will to do it. The country's completely divided. Um, and I thought this is going to be with us for a very long time. Again, I, I'm looking back toward my uh, feelings as a citizen of a failed superpower, the Soviet Union. You know, mm-hmm. uh, that country, it had its moments uh, during World War Two, the, the Soviet army at a cost of uh, millions and millions of of fighters including my grandfather who was killed outside of leningrad during the siege of leningrad country came together and was able despite its awful leader and its awful politics but by the time you know by the brezhnev era the whole thing was falling apart No, nope. there was there was no effective system of governance and that's how i began to feel about this country during the last administration and i thought we're not going to kick the pandemic's butt it's going to kick our butt and so when i was writing this I, I i had no feeling of oh my god i better get this out immediately because this thing is going to be over by uh, you know mm. July, um, I, I thought it'll take years to make any dent. If if we will ever truly get rid of it, and that's given the number of people who will never accept the vaccination, um, I think that's also in doubt. Yeah,
1: I you know I still one of my earliest conversations about the pandemic that's really stuck with me. Talking to my best friend, actually from Kingston, New York, not not oh, yeah, where are talking about. And I was saying like you know how, we're fighting this thing state by state. We can't possibly win fighting yeah. it in this particular way. And yeah. he was like, well, we're not going to win. Like, how are we going to lose is the mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think uh, that, that's exactly how it's gone.
2: Um, well, not, and, and not to make your listeners more depressed, I just want to, you know, uh, I, I think novels about crises, crises are going to become... Uh, more of a staple because even if the pandemic recedes, something else will happen. I mean, I think there'll be a lot of great California novels about everything that's happening in your neck of the woods. Mm. Um, you know, there's just, it's, it's just the way we're going to live from now on. And I think uh, any writer who's not a historical writer, uh, any writer that writes uh, of the present moment or even of the future is going to have to address these issues because they're only going to get worse. Yeah. You know, one of the
1: fascinating kind of ways that you were reprocessing some of your previous work, you know, and and synthesizing it into something new, is you had, you know, the character of Masha, who's the main character's Mm. wife, um, acting as a psychiatrist for Mm. extremely uh, (laughs) right-wing Soviet immigrants. Um, And I was wondering if you could, you know... I was trying to think if you had that kind of character in, in previous uh, novels or whether it just felt like at this point you needed to sort of reveal some of the ugly side or or a different kind of ugly side about what's happened to people that you know and, and people around you.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, yes, my relatives, uh, people in my family, many of them are uh, on the far right uh, Many of them won't accept vaccines uh, because they listen to either Russian state television, which tells them, you know, millions have died from Pfizer and Moderna or, you know, Tucker Carlson or whoever. And so they're brimming with wonderful misinformation about everything and are very happy to spread it to others. So that was a uh, obviously a, a huge inspiration. And I also, you know, I look at, at at Facebook, where some of the people that follow me, strangely enough, are these Russians, and I hmm. look at their feeds. And I, I just, uh, you know, there's a chapter in the book where I kind of quote, yeah, some of these absolutely horrific, racist, far right feeds. And uh, that is exactly what they're disseminating. And I think, you know, some of your listeners might be actually shocked by the level of vitriol, maybe not, but the level of vitriol is so disgusting uh, and, and is so and it's funny, you know, because it, they grew up in a country in the Soviet Union uh, with such high levels of misinformation. And when you turn on the news, everything was a lie. And, th- and then they fled that country. And now in America, they seek out the, the lies here. Uh, it's almost like their conditioning cannot be over overprogrammed.
1: We're talking with <clears throat> excuse me, we're talking with novelist Gary Steingart about his new novel, Our Country Friends. And we do want to hear from you. Did the lockdown strengthen your friendships and relationships or did it erode them? Were you in a pandemic pod? And do you have even like good memories even uh, from this strange time? Give us a call now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, a listener tweets, I'm not a scab puller. The lockdown is way too fresh and my life is not back to normal yet. Uh, I might read this book in 10 years. <laughs> Have you been getting that reaction from people like, hey, I, I actually I'm not ready. Or are people feeling hungry to, to process that feeling?
2: Well, I think the important thing to remember is that the pandemic forms the background of this book, but it is not this book. Uh, the yeah, book is about yeah. friendships and families. Uh, and I think the people that I've talked to who have read the book say that it actually because I mean, there's tragedy in the book as well. But the, the, the sense is that of reminding us of the funnier aspects of the pandemic, all the different things uh, that, that that made it uh, both incredibly strange but also, you know, just uh, droll and interesting in some ways. For example, in the book, there's a restaurant uh, that's known for its hand sanitizer. It has really great hand sanitizer. and The food is okay, but people really come up to (laughs) to sort of use this really great hand sanitizer. So uh, aspects like that, and I know people may be saying, it's too soon, I'm not nostalgic for it yet because I'm still living through it. But I think that the tone of it is such that we're able to process, one is able to process what happened and maybe think about it in a different way. I mean, that's my... That's my dream for it. But again, it's, you know, friends is in the title and friendship. But most of my other books in some ways were about either romantic relationships or about uh, the relationship between children and parents, specifically immigrant children, and parents. And that's definitely in here as well. Uh, but the most important part for me is just the way people share their friendships. And in t- speaking about immigrant friends, I realized that you know, I was talking about how many of our parents are listening to this misinformation stuff. You begin to realize how many, not all, of course, but many parents that I know uh, of of immigrant children such as myself were not able to fully guide us in, in the American context because their mm. appreciation of life was from such a different and and awful place for many people. You know, uh, whether Russian immigrants who survived Hitler and Stalin uh, Chinese immigrants who survived the cultural revolution, Korean immigrants who survived, uh, uh, whose parents survived the uh, Japanese occupation or the, or the civil war in Korea, or you know, Indian Americans whose parents had survived partition. They were all very traumatized uh, uh, down the line. And often we couldn't really turn, they could, we couldn't turn to them to give us the exact advice we needed. And so our friendships were strengthened in a way, and we became sort of parents to one another. You know, so everyone took on a different role. I remember as the writer, I was charged with uh, writing uh, CVs for, for people applying to jobs, you know, because I'm <laughs> supposed to have been very good at that. So I would, you know, brush up their cover letters and all that kind of stuff. And then another friend of mine who was great at sewing things, made wallets for everybody, you know, so we wouldn't have to go out and buy wallets. It was all very cute. Uh, but I think we really felt a, a, a very stronger connection. And that is one of the bases of this book, you know, the way uh, these Friendships. Now everyone is in their 40s, everyone is looking back, everyone's been given a kind of scorecard by society as to how well they've done. So there's some competition, there's some jealousy, uh, there's some betrayal that that, that that is unearthed throughout the book. But uh, in general, it, it's, it's about uh, the strengths and challenges of being friends so closely with somebody else that you almost feel like they're the brother or sister you never had.
1: And the pandemic sort of levels them all out again. There they are, no matter no matter yeah. how their life has gone. They're stuck yeah. in the same place doing the same thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I mean, the pandemic gave me a very nice uh, <laughs> stage, if you will. I mean, the, the book is shaped like a four-act play. It gave me a very nice stage to explore uh, friendship as a topic. Yeah.
1: Um, one of the other things about immigrant parents, too, is I feel like some of them, because they had survived so much, um, didn't necessarily take COVID or or lots of other things. Some, you know, friends of ours, their parents don't worry about air pollution, they say, because they have Mm -hmm. third world lungs. And I'm like, wait, no, no, that's not how lungs work. (laughs) You know, that's the fact that you had a lot of particulate emissions in your childhood is actually still bad, even if um, things are better now. So sometimes the risk analysis in, in a lot of communities feels like it was quite different than than in other places? Sure.
2: I mean, you know, if you come from a family like mine where, I don't know, more than half of it, if not more, was eviscerated Mm -hmm. by, you know, Stalinist labor camps or or Hitler's um, Operation Barbarossa where he conquered the the former Soviet Union or parts of the former Soviet Union, uh, climate change begins to seem like a very abstract thing. You know, there's not Germans shooting at you, so everything must be okay. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. oh, it's a little warmer. The daffodils are coming in earlier, but that's probably... but. That's not a big deal compared to millions of people uh, you know, murdered all around you. So, yes, I, I think that cost analysis is, is, is risk analysis is maybe in there as well. Yeah.
1: You know, there's a, a character that I feel like is a, a new type of character in your work as well in Vinod. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in part because Vinod's not funny. Mm-hmm. There's no there's kind of no gag. He's just kind of right. a good person. Uh, Mm -hmm. trying to trying to make his way in the world. Yeah. Um, Did you tell me about writing a character that really does feel quite Mm -hmm. different from the other people
2: uh, in in all your books? Yeah, as I was, um, as we're getting older, I feel like I am more attuned to the fact that there are people in my life who are just good (laughs) And, you know, they have some problems uh, and and their problems are are often internalized. They feel like they're not uh, successful enough or their parents will never really fully win the love of their parents. But somehow they don't transmit that into anger at others. You know, they have a a sense of calmness about that, about them. Um, And previously in my more satirical works, I, I don't think I would have turned to characters like that because, I need something explosive and funny and and uh, you know, full of witty quotes, et cetera. I mean, not that Vinod isn't witty at times too, no, no. Um, but um, I, I began to become more attuned to people like that and, and developed a, a real soft spot for them. Um, and and writing them turned out to be quite easy. And, and, Vinod, and, and Vinod is also somebody who lost the lung to cancer. He's been very sick, which is one reason he comes up uh, to uh, Sasha's uh, upstate um, menagerie because he needs the you know, he's he's very worried that he would, uh, he lives in Queens, which was in, in Elmhurst, which was the epicenter of, of mm-hmm. COVID during the time it hit New York. So he's sort of coming there in a way that he's thinking he's saving himself, and he, you know. Um, so he. it's one reason why he comes up. Um, but it's true. I also, you know, as we get older, I have a lot of friends who are falling ill, and I feel a particular kind of kinship. I grew up very sick with asthma, and asthma was not treated well in the Soviet Union. There were no steroid inhalers or anything like that. So I feel mm. a great kinship toward people like that. And I think I think as I you know as I age, uh, I, I'm more ready to handle characters like that as opposed to just going for the sort of you know the funny sort of Dickensian archetypes of characters. yeah.
1: We're talking with novelist Gary Steingart about new novel our country friends a uh, few listener pandemic memories before we go to break leslie writes spending every social visit outside under the stars breathing the fresh air of trees and seeing ducks fly overhead during a sunset dinner was a wonderful year hope that part never ends another listener writes My pandemic pod was made up of two other families. We hung out together regularly, and I got to know these people better. I knew them well, but really got to know them after this. Same was true for friends who were not near us. Amidst all this sadness, I am grateful that the pandemic clarified what was important. Human connection. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the novelist Gary Steingart about his new book, Our Country Friends. Really excellent, wonderful book. Um, Gary, you also uh, have written some other things during this time. Um, And one of them is a New Yorker article, which uh, many, many people I know uh, have been talking about. That's actually um, about your penis. Uh, Yeah, yeah. how about that? and, And... I guess I, I don't want to make light of it, though it is also a very funny article.
2: Um, penises are funny. Yeah.
1: Penises are, I mean, just saying it on the air, honestly. It's so um, fun to say it, yeah. Uh, but it's also actually really a story about pain. Um, yeah. So maybe you could tell yeah. us a little bit about that experience, because sure. it really touches on a lot of these things, you know, <laughs> mortality,
2: healthcare care yeah. system, uh, and, and much more. Yeah, it definitely touches on a lot of things, yes. Um I would say that uh, yeah. when I came to America, when I was seven years old, um, my parents, one month after we arrived in Queens, uh, my parents were visited by Chabadniks, uh, followers of the Lubavitcher Rabbi. Uh, and they said, uh, one of them spoke Russian and he said, you know, you really got to circumcise your kids. In this country, we circumcise kids. So a month later uh, I was circumcised, uh, you know, sort of welcome to America. Now we're going to cut off a part of your penis. Um, that's the national way. So, but unfortunately that uh, operation did not work out very well and I was in pain, there was an infection and it it didn't heal properly and I was in pain for years. And then without getting into too much detail during the middle of the pandemic in uh, August, late August of 2020, um, one of the problems that was engendered by the first operation became a problem again and became a very, very painful problem. for which i sought the help of about 12 urologists uh i actually spoke to a great hypnotist to try to get my mind off the pain from the bay area uh how'd we do did we help you did great i uh, this is what i love about the bay area if you need a hypnotist you you guys have your fair share of them uh but this one was brilliant um uh, plastic surgeons uh all kinds of doctors, uh, and finally, after about a year of incredible pain—the kind of pain that was, you know, bordering on suicidal thoughts—I um, found a doctor. Weirdly enough, in Lake Success, New York, which was the title of my last novel, uh, a doctor who prescribed the kind of ingenious um, pain compound. Uh, it's a—it's a, something you put topically, you put on topically, um, and so it became. Uh, I, I became very interested in the history of circumcisions. I talked to a friend of mine who's a rabbi. I began to uh, really look into it uh, before I began this New Yorker article. And some of the things I found are absolutely horrifying, um, especially in the way this country has treated circumcision, um, because most of the world outside of the Middle East, outside of Islamic and Jewish culture, does not really engage in this practice. Uh, But I learned a lot about how the American Medical Association, why it began to support it in the 19th century, where it was thought circumcision was thought to be a a cure for things like paralysis and lunacy, quote unquote. Mm. In fact, at one point, uh, (laughs) all the males in a New York lunatic asylum, as they used to call them, were circumcised. And shockingly enough, it did not cure their mental illnesses, only made them hurt quite a bit more. Uh, And then, you know, every decade or so, the American medical establishment comes up with new reasons why we should circumcise. And those are kind of dealt away with. uh, And at one point it was a very, uh, you know, the American Medical Association presented a very racist idea of why, for example, uh, Jews are so smart and chaste, whereas other groups you can imagine with groups are, are terribly promiscuous. And the reason was circumcision, yes. So even racism was able to find its way into the discourse. And as a Jew, look, I mean, you know, there's um, 613 mitzvot or good deeds or commandments that are, uh, you know, that that a Jew is instructed to take. And very few Jews follow, even very religious Jews follow all 613 commandments of which circumcision is one. And I guess my message to to, to, to Jews is, you know if you wanna be closer to Judaism, choose a less painful commandment to follow you know the, the keeping of the sabbath which is such a beautiful commandment putting away your facebook and instagram you know putting all and, and twitter putting that away from friday sundown to saturday sundown there's a beautiful thing that we can do but you know it might, why not try to substitute that for maybe you know, cutting a baby's penis uh, or a seven-year-old's penis in my case
1: yeah i mean 10 10 commandments always seemed pretty tough to me i mean 613 yeah even yeah. 10 is
2: tough but 613 is a lot
1: Um, Garrett, I want to get to uh, a couple of um, pandemic memories from some of our listeners. Um, Lila, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, what was your
3: um, story? Yeah,
0: I gave birth to twins
3: on March 16th, 2020, which was the day that our city shut down. And um, for three months, we basically barely made it. And we finally decided that we had to open up. And... That began the beginning of our family sleepovers where we had one family that came over pretty much every single weekend and the entire family slept over.
1: Oh my gosh, really?
3: It will be stamped in my heart forever. It doesn't matter what happens from now on, they will be our family.
1: Yeah, thank you Very for that sweet. one. Yeah, there's kind of this like friend to family conversion. I mean, it's actually interesting because yeah. in, in your book, they basically are already family. They've been sort of forged by... Uh, the yeah. outer boroughs, <laughs> and, right? Uh, <laughs>
2: uh,
1: but I think one of the things that's great is I think lots of people. I, I certainly felt this. Lots of people were were actually feeling that same thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it it really, uh, you know, as as a previous caller also said, it's it sort of or uh, it's sort of made friendships into into families. And I think in, in a in a book like mine, it's it's friends remembering what drew them together to begin with, because some of these people are very far flung, live in different parts of the world. Ah, uh, they haven't. Many of them haven't seen each other in a while, and and you really begin to remember all of these all of these memories and what brought you together in the first place. Yeah, it's it's you know
1: in the book the sort of character who I think represents that transformation most completely is maybe Ed, who's sort of this world mm. traveler who <laughs> arrives at this upstate bungalow and it just basically wants to scream into a pillow because their yeah. sort of modus operandi is to just keep moving,
2: yeah. and keep yeah. moving. Yeah. Yeah, no. Ed was Ed was fun to write because he's uh, he's Korean by birth, but he doesn't even have Korean citizenship. He has Canadian, British, and Swiss citizenship, so he's one of those people. And Perfect like, I know world traveler. Of them. Perfect world traveler. But I think there was a lot of Ed and uh, a lot of me and Ed as well because um, before this pandemic, I was always traveling nonstop, uh, and I did a lot of writing for uh for tv so i'd have to go to la or uh touring for my books in america and europe and sometimes asia and it was always just nonstop travel and um i loved it but i was getting really tired of it and, and really missed my family and friends uh but after two years of this i i haven't i'm going on my first trip for this tour to boston in uh on Saturday that'll be the first time I'll be leaving New York State and I am dying. I have never wanted to see Boston more in my life. Like I will eat their food. I will eat Bostonian cuisine. Anything, just get me out of here, you know.
1: Um uh, let's bring in one more caller, Tiffany from Oakland. Welcome. Hey Tiffany, are you there? Hey, Tiffany, are you there? I'm here. Hey Tiffany, what was your uh, pandemic story?
0: Well, we had a wonderful uh, uh, block um, already, and we just got stronger. You know, I think we were, we were very, very, very thankful that we had each other to lean on when we couldn't even see our own families. We celebrated all the holidays to de- together, quite a few 40th birthdays, and there's a vivid memory I have of walking up Claremont Canyon with uh, one of our pod dads and just, you know the kids. We just took it all in stride and enjoyed and loved on each other, and it was just—it was—it was actually a really magical part of my life. I'll always remember.
1: Oh, thank you, Tiffany. Thanks. Appreciate that memory. Um, you know, Gary, it's interesting. I—I I do have this weird feeling, as you do, I think, that this period of sort of introspection and community bonding is something that we'll both remember fondly. And also, perhaps not continue. Yes, <laughs> which like yeah, sure. that—that's that, one of those. Uh, and maybe it actually brings me to sort of uh, one of the last themes that I, what I, I wanted to get to, which is this book has sort of technology laced through it in mm-hmm. really interesting ways to kind of pull of these technologies as well as um, some of their their dangers. And, you know, you're saying, you know, right before we took some calls, just the the idea of the, the Sabbath to put your to put your devices mm-hmm. down, to get rid of Facebook, uh, at least for a day or two. Um, and yet we keep not doing that. Um, and I and I am really like most reminded by a conversation we actually had 10 years ago around mm-hmm. your book, Super Sad True Love Story. Mm-hmm. And you said back then, and I'll just quote you back to yourself because it's pretty funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said, like Christ, I am suffering for humanity. I did all this research and plugging in for the book. I had very little contact with technology before that. I still have a Yahoo account. That's how old school I am. (laughs) Um,
2: And yet you kind of never unplugged, right? Yes. And that is the other thing. I mean, we'll remember fondly the moments of closeness with friends turned family, et cetera. But at the uh, other extreme, we didn't just not unplug during this pandemic. I think we plugged in more. I mean, I think we were, you know, I think we Amazon shopped our way into, into a whole different uh, consumerist sphere. It was just non um, nonstop social media, et cetera. And, and social media, of course, can draw people together, but we were also, I think, just uh, moving even further into this virtual world and away from the physical world. That was always my fear. And that was always, that was the basis for, for really for super sad true love story. Um, I definitely felt that, and I wanted it to be a theme in this book. And in this book, uh, I have this little conceit that it's very hard to get reception uh, where they are, except you have to go to this one part of the house that has <laughs> Wi-Fi and stuff. And yeah. when I moved upstate, one of the reasons I actually moved upstate is there weren't enough cell phone towers at that point to, to have good connection. You could have some connection, but it was very hard to do anything on your phone. Uh, that, unfortunately, has changed in the last 10 years. But Uh, That was the idea was to get away from it as much as I could. And I, and, and yes, technology stalks this book. In fact, I would say that technology is responsible for some of the more awful things that happen to the characters in this book. So, you know, one character's life is not destroyed by the pandemic, but rather by something she's written and tweeted and stuff like that. So um, absolutely, I think it's impossible the same way it's impossible to write about the present day without, you know, mentioning, um, you know, the global, the, the climate change that's happening and and to mention uh, pandemics to present and future. It's also, I think, impossible not to write about technology and the stranglehold it has in so many of our lives.
1: Yeah. You know, one of the things that commentators on your book have noted is that you cancel culture, I'm air quoting here, cancel culture as it mm-hmm. is, it is known, has sort of, um been deployed uh, in some books and works of fiction and television. But this is actually a, a really quite different portrayal of, of cancel culture. And I, and I don't want to give away too much mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the book, but I, I guess I wanted to get your sense of the sort of political valences of cancel culture. Uh, and is it is it actually a real thing? I mean, that's one of the things that people like to question yeah. about it. Like, you know, um, and, yeah, I mean, and what do you make of it? As someone who tweets jokes a
2: lot, you, you yourself.
3: Yeah, yeah,
2: it hasn't been canceled yet. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't see it as that new a thing. I think people have always been cancelling one another especially in small groups i mean what is twitter twitter is not you know america writ large twitter where cancellation seems to be happening or or supposedly happening is you know just a bunch of people who are very plugged into it's a very educated medium for the most part plugged into media and etc stuff like that so uh but a form of cancellation was always there you know people in fact people were more i think censorious within small groups uh if you look at at, at, at you know literature, um, writers were fighting each other to the death. Uh, you know, you'd go to a party and Norman Mailer would punch you in the nose. I mean, talk about being canceled, right? You'd, you'd get it straight in the straight in the schnoz instead of you know somebody saying, oh, I don't know, so and so is not you know politically appropriate or whatever. So I think cancel culture was far more violent, I mean, people would duel over over opinions at one point. You know. Uh, rest in peace, uh, Mr. Hamilton. So, you know, um, I, I don't see anything terribly new here, and I think it's slightly being exploited by some people as a as a way of saying, "Well, the culture's gotten out of hand." But the yes, some people do get hurt. Uh, there are some people who who shouldn't have been hurt, and but I think in the end, um, their lives straighten out. You know, those people who haven't done anything terrifyingly egregious are. Uh, survive any kind of attacks the way that writers in the past have survived attacks by even fellow minded. I mean, we're not, you know, this isn't uh, uh, Bolshevik Russia where where you, you you face a firing squad if you fall outside of uh, any kind of political orthodoxy. Yeah.
1: Um, some listener comments for your questions. Kate writes, did you have any guilt writing about some of the more positive sides of the pandemic? As a writer, how do you talk your way out of that? I'm so excited yeah. to read your book, but it's also painful. As someone married to a frontline worker, I lost friends yeah. who were scared. We were disease factors. Berkeley yeah. was a real epicenter for COVID anxiety and felt very left alone with my two kids without a lot of resources or friends.
2: Yeah, no. So guilt is the is a kind of through line that goes through the novel, the characters. And not all characters are very wealthy here, obviously. Like Vinod, there are people who are very vulnerable. And obviously the pandemic affected people who were wealthier in a very different way than people who were poorer uh poor people suffered quite a bit more frontline workers obviously suffered uh, quite a bit more um and that sense of guilt pervades the novel in terms of its characters constantly worrying about uh, you know what 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 is happening a hundred miles to the south in places like elmhurst from which all of you know from which half of these characters sprung from, uh, which are still immigrant areas, which were disproportionately affected by the pandemic. So absolutely, and and, and, and that happened to, to those of us who live upstate, you know, we also felt because we were, for the most part, incredibly safe, everything was very, uh, you know, everything you could shop, et cetera, without even going into a store. Um, And we felt uh, very safe and and therefore very guilty about that. But also, um, as I said, this is a funny novel in many respects, but the pandemic doesn't entirely leave these characters alone either. So uh, we do have a reminder that that in the end, no matter how privileged you are, uh, you're not going to, in a Peter Thiel way, kind of outlive anything. You know, these horrible things will come for you at the end. Uh, because we are all in this together, whether we uh, whether we think so or not,
1: yeah. um, last question, probably for you. One listener writes, it feels like so much of Steingart's work is autobiographical. Do his friends yeah. wonder if they're in his books? Are they flattered or upset about the portrayals?
2: <laughs> Here's the funny thing. Nobody ever figures out whether they're being represented in a book or not because people's <laughs> self-conception is so different from who they are. Uh, I mentioned Absurdistan with its 325-pound son of oligarchs. Well, there was a, car- a a real person who had some similarities to that, and I remember him. You can't go to Kyrgyzstan anymore. <laughs> I, I got well, no, I can't. But uh, beside that, I remember him running after me on the street. Now, and you know, he could literally break me in half just by poking me with his with his large thumb. Um, he was running after me. I thought, Oh God, I'm about to get my butt kicked. And he came up to me, he's like, Gary, I just read Absurdist then. Who's that idiot? Misha. I love him. <laughs> you know, so no one ever knows who they are or, or which part of them has been put into the meat grinder to produce a certain character. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, I would, if I read something about a character who, who had some similarities, but I would, I would think, no, I'm not like that person at all. I think we all have a great gift of self-delusion. And that delusion is a great part of writing characters. Because if I think I'm an I'm a giraffe, but I'm actually an aardvark, the difference between how I perceive myself and who I really am, that's humor. You know, that's the funny part. And that's what everybody brings to the table. You know, every single person, you know, uh, Zuckerberg must think he's a particular kind of person. But the truth is, he's really not, you know, and that makes even him funny. Right.
1: You're like, I'm surprised. Why do people say these are autobiographical novels?
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, I do know. When I use myself as a, a bit of a role model, as I obviously have with uh, Sasha. Yes,
1: um, this has been so great. It is as always so so good to talk with you. This book Likewise. is so funny, and um, I I honestly think for people who are out there going, I can't read a pandemic book, that they should give it a they should give it a go. I think it's actually worth a, a salve, at least for me. Thanks for joining us, Gary.
2: Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. We've been
1: talking with novelist Gary Steingart about his new novel, Our Country Friends. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.